0: Hey, what's up everybody? Greatest show on dirt coming to you live from the Sweet Beast Studios. January 7th. We are seven days into the new year, about 34 days away from spring training. I am feeling pumped. I'm excited. We are rocking and rolling. I hope everyone had a great holiday season. I hope everyone has their New Year's resolutions in check. I hope you reach those resolutions. I know for me, I'm gun informed, pal. I want to become a better person in 2020 the best way I can, but I don't want to do it with the ordinary, normal resolutions. Like, do I want to make a New Year's resolution to exercise more? I absolutely don't, okay? And I think that's a responsible decision because when I walk up the stairs at work, I get out of breath. What do you think's going to happen if I go to the gym? I might hurt myself completely. Like, it, it's not going to be a good thing for me. Like, I can't do those sorts of things. Like, and plus, you know— Like, do you think people back in the day exercised? like Vikings? Do you think Vikings went to the gym? No, they just grew big beards and drank beer, which is exactly what I plan to do this year. So we're rocking. That's not going to happen. Do I want to learn any new skills or hobbies? No, not no. No, I don't. You know what I mean? Do I want to save more money or spend less money? No, no. I don't want to do those things either because I'm, you know, I've got a baseball card addiction on eBay. So why in the world would I deprive myself of that? What if an asteroid hit the earth tomorrow and all, and I burned up along with all the baseball cards? That's like that's not a good thing and I want no part of that whatsoever. You know, I'm going to buy all the baseball cards I can and let my creditor sort it out after I die. Like none of this is my problem. Like I don't get it. So my New Year's resolutions, like, I want to sort of be like a take-charge guy. You know what I mean? Like, maybe I want to be the Michael Jordan of New Year's resolutions or the Bo Jackson of New Year's resolutions where I can just do everything, jump over a Volkswagen hypothetically, right? My main New Year's resolution is I want to start gambling pretty hardcore. People talk about side hustles and stuff like that, and I want to start gambling pretty hardcore. I always wanted to be the guy that said, I'll bust your legs if you ain't got my money. Right. You come here. You come here to this table again. And I go bust your legs. You know, I always wanted to say that to someone and mean it. Go bust your legs. You come here to this table again. You know, I run this table. I'm the pit boss around here. We see you come here again. We'll bust your boy. We'll bust your legs. That's what I want to do, man. Plus, I think it's a side hustle. A good one. I've got a kid on the way. It was sort of about creating passive income. I could do some loan sharking, some laundering, some intimidation. I think these are great. New Year's resolution number two, I for sure want to stop peeing in the shower. Listen, I got a kid on the way, and I know she's not going to see me pee in the shower, but it's just knowing that I pee in the shower sort of like tells me like I should just be a better man, you know. It can't be the most sanitary thing, but I'm all about efficiency. And like I've been peeing in the shower Well, I'm 36 years old, so, I mean, I've been peeing in the shower for 36 years, you know, or the bathtub as well, because something about that, when that water gets me, it's a psychological thing, like Pavlov's dog, where I've just, like, I've just got to pee, you know what I mean, and nothing beats that freedom. You can stand in the shower, warm water running over your body, you got your hands at your sides, and you're just letting the stream flow where it may be, you know, that is a zen-like philosophy of just go with the flow, and that's sort of what peeing in the shower does, but I'm going to stop it because I want to be a better person, right? New Year's resolution number three, I'm going to start flossing. Listen, I go to the dentist last year sometime, and he asked me, he goes, hey, man, you've been flossing? And I was like, no, that's why I come here. And he's like, man, that's not how you can do it. And then he was like, well, you should definitely floss the teeth you want to keep. To which I respond, well, for sure, the two front teeth, because those are the most important. And they laughed because I'm like the funniest person in the world. But, you know, I thought... Like, my logic to him was like, listen, if I lose a few teeth because I haven't flossed, like, I would just look like a hockey player, right? That or a meth addict with a sweet double wide in a laboratory in the woods. I'm not really too sure. I would hope the former, but probably the latter. So I'm going to start flossing because I don't want to look like a meth head in Alabama. Like, those are bad things. Um, But does anyone – do you guys floss? Like usually I floss twice a year because I go to the dentist every six months and I'll floss like four times the morning before my dentist appointment. Like my gums are bloody and I'm like, oh, this doesn't really feel good. Like I'm just like cramming it like a test, dude. Okay. Then next resolution, I'd like to start stealing a little more little things from my family. Feel that adrenaline rush. Like Winona Ryder, you know what I mean? Winona Ryder years back got busted for stealing, you know? I thought maybe I sort of want to be like Joe Goldberg, but I don't want to kill people. I just want to leave stuff on the bottom of my basket. You know, we don't do bottles of water, so no plastic water, but like toilet paper right? Have you seen the prices of toilet paper these days? It is outrageous. And I'm not about to buy Scott single ply. I'm a better man than that. You know what I'm saying? But also you've heard this show, you've talked about my diaper stealing ring. And that's where like the gambling starts to get, you know, come into play. Because, you know, if I become like a loan shark, I start intimidating people. You're talking money laundering, like additional charges. And then like I get in the diaper game and you know, like I've got a diaper ring and it's me and a bunch of like other parents men and women, and we're working in the illegal legal diaper ring. You know, I don't care about cocaine or heroin or marijuana, which is legal most every place is now. I want to really get that diaper ring going. You know what I mean? Well, I'm like, hey, hey, boy, you got them pampers? We asked for pampers, and we want the all-natural pampers. We don't want no chemicals. I look at I look at my, my, uh, my drug runner, and I say, boy, you bring me, you bring me diapers with added chlorine and parabens in them one more time and you'll be swimming with the fishes you see those concrete blocks over there i time around them pretty little ankles because only my baby's gonna have chlorine free diapers on her buttocks you mess up again boy i get you i'll bust your legs and that's just it man so i think those things are good right i also i have so much so many episodes of ancient aliens on my dvr i have got to catch up, right? There's so many unanswered questions that I have in my life. Like, what happened to crop circles? What were the origins of crop circles? Why were they popular in the '90s? But no one's really doing or talking about crop circles now. Are crop circles still happening, or are they like Jinko jeans and skating mix of the '90s? When well, no one really does it anymore, I'd like to maybe have some crop circles of myself. Maybe talk to the folks upstairs. Maybe get aliens to cure acid reflux because I can't figure it out, and all I do is take Nexium, and stuff goes on. My doctor says I can exercise but I'd rather write it in a crop circle and ask the aliens if they need to take me up in their ship just bring me back by five because the wife is making fish sticks let's do this thing man I'm ready to rock and also my last my last New Year's resolution, bro, I want to join a bowling league. I want to join a bowling league at, like, an old-school bowling alley with cigarette vending machines where I can put a quarter in and get a pack of Winstons. You know what I'm saying? Bowling is one of is the greatest sports ever. Like, what other sport can you play where the performance-hancing drug is a pitcher of Miller Lite? You tell me, man, because you know if you ever go bowling, you get, like, two or three beers deep and all of a sudden you just feel like Bo Jackson of bowling where like you can't miss man and before you know it my gut's hanging out I can literally change the oil on any car and I can tell what the weather's gonna be by my trick knee my voice is gonna get raspy because from the smoking and my friends will look to me and they'll be like Quentin you know a good bail bondsman because I'm a rugged bowler people are gonna love that you know what I mean I'd get a tattoo but it'd be one of those green ones that like Vietnam vets have that were done in the field while they were breathing in ancient orange, you know what's gonna look like? You're not really gonna be able to make the tattoo out. It's gonna be crooked in a really ill-advised spot, but it's gonna look like I've done hard time. That I'm not afraid of anything. That I'm a take charge person, and I might know where the aliens are. And I'm not really too sure. That's it, <laughs> buddy. If you made it through those eight minutes, praise be. Let's get to the show, brother. Alright, alright, alright. Let's get to some baseball news. Contrary to popular belief, we do talk a little bit of baseball on this show. Dave Kaplan from NBC Sports says folks don't really care about Chris Bryant and nobody really wants him, especially for the asking, asking price that the Cubs want for the guy. You know, apparently the word is that the amount of dudes that the Cubs want for Chris Bryant is a complete joke. They want Major League ready talent at the level of glaber torres which is never going to happen the yankees if if they put it this way if the yankees needed a third baseman they would never trade glaber torres for chris bryant but that's not at stake here right like this this former gm is just saying they want someone at that level of Glaber Torres. that's not going to happen the only thing that the cubs are really going to get for chris bryant are prospects at this point if you look at what the the Arizona Diamondbacks got for Paul Goldschmidt. They got a really good top prospect catcher and then Luke Weaver which was sort of like we'll get him and he might be okay but he might not and he was hurt most of last year right. So that's really all the Cubs are gonna get. They'll get they could get one top prospect and no more than one top prospect. Um, A different executive said that he felt like Chris Bryant was in no way, shape, or form a dude he would pay 30 million bucks a year to. So he's not even on the level of a guy like Anthony Rendon, Bryce Harper, Manny Machado. Like He's not that guy. And I sort of get where he's coming from because there's sort of I mean Chris Bryant had great numbers in 2016. He's been on a decline in the last 2 years. So that regression from someone so young makes me nervous. Folks say it's the injuries, but if it's injuries or if it's not injuries, the you know the end result is still the same. It's sort of like the Yankees picking up on Giancarlo Stanton, you pay him all this money and he's not able to play. I I personally don't think Chris Bryant as a guy that you can rely on to be that cornerstone of your offense, and that's why this executive, this former executive, or maybe it's a current executive, who gives a crap, that he's not worth $30 million. And I sort of get where they're coming from, but I don't know personally with to go back— to how much the Cubs supposedly want for Chris Bryant. I just don't know at this point that it's in any team's best interest, like the Red Sox, wanting to move Mookie Betts. I'm not too sure that anybody that has a high-profile position player is going to get what they truly want Position player because I feel like teams at this point are only going to give up multiple top prospects in a trade for high level pitching talent, and it's because that that has more of an impact, I feel like, on the game than what a hitter does, right? If the let's say if the Los Angeles Dodgers were to get Chris Bryant right now and he's in the lineup instead of Justin Turner, okay, so you're not, with Chris Bryant, like, you're not replacing a guy. Because that's one of the big talks is like, dude, what? Um, Dodgers, 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 right? Dodgers and Braves, I think, are some of the two main guys that that people talk about, oh, Chris Bryant might go to these places, right? Well, the Dodgers, and it's completely crazy. Folks on Twitter are like, oh, if we trade Chris Bryant to the Dodgers, we're going to need Dustin May, Alex Verdugo, and Tony Gonsolin. I don't think the Dodgers would give up one of those guys in a package to get Chris Bryant. But I might be wrong, right? But the the trade rumors out there are bonkers for the Dodgers. But what I'm getting at is this. If you were to replace Chris Bryant for Justin Turner, and this is maybe going to get to my point. Who the heck knows, really? It's not like you're replacing a bum third baseman with Chris Bryant. Justin Turner's a really good hitter at third base and has a a glove probably as good right now as what Chris Bryant had last year. Either way, like, there's not that much of a fall-off defensively if there is one way or the other. So let's call them equal defensively. Who knows if that's true or not? I know. Um, Your bat isn't getting that much better, so it's not worth it to get Bryant at $30 million when you could just get, like, Justin Turner. And then plus, the way you are with the Dodgers and the way a lot of teams are, which might be a reason why... The a lot of teams wouldn't be willing to pay Bryant thirty million or shell out top prospects for him is because if you're a team like the Dodgers or the Braves or maybe like the Mets or whoever, maybe the Mets actually would be a good spot for him because like when it comes to the Braves and the Dodgers, you already have key pillars in that lineup that those are like your offensive powerhouses, right? Like Ronald Acuna, Freddie Freeman, they're big bats in that lineup. And I feel like unless you're a team that just has zilch, like the Baltimore Orioles or the New York Mets or maybe like the San Francisco Giants, and, you know, the Giants and the Orioles would never be ready to make a big move like that at this point in their builds, no one's going to really give up top prospects for Chris Bryant because I do believe there comes to a point where you can just have too much offense in your lineup. And I say it Here's the best way I can explain it. If Giancarlo Stanton's healthy all this year, right, if you have a season, let's let's say you were able to simulate two 2020 seasons. One season had the whole entire Yankees lineup healthy, including Giancarlo Stanton. But then the second simulation had exactly the same thing, but minus Giancarlo Stanton. Do you think those results would be that much different? I don't think they would because it's almost like if you have so much firepower in a lineup, Like having Aaron Judge and DJ LeMayhew and Aaron Hicks, and there are power guys in that lineup, right? Glaber Torres, power guy. If at some point you can add to that and get minimal results... It's like the law of diminishing returns. You can't put three 50 home run guys on a team that were on different teams and then put them on the same team and expect them all to hit 50 home runs. Like pitchers aren't going to be that crappy. And baseball at some point is just a law of averages. Guys are going to bat 300. You're going to go through the lineup. You're only going to give up so many hits. You know what I mean? It's like in basketball when um, LeBron, James, LeBron James gets together with all these studs like in Miami and you expect them to win five or six titles and they only won like two because you just, you tap out at talent at that point and truly have to have guys that complement each other. So I think that's what stalls a lot of these position players being on teams that are looking to move them and just not getting value that that team wants because most teams that are in contention that are ready for those guys, they sort of have like that core nucleus and like the, like the Padres would never move on him. And they weren't even a playoff team last year, but it's just sort of like, you know, Manny Machado, sort of just like the core of that lineup and Fernando Tatis Jr., who is an absolute maniac stud. And it's just like, yeah, you know, that's sort of going to be the thing. So it would really have to be like a true rebuilder. I mean, it's not even like Chris Bryant could go to the White Sox. Let's pretend that that could possibly happen because, like, the White Sox have their core of offense. So it's like, okay, like, maybe I don't really need that. You know what I mean? So it's just going to be hard to move guys like that. And, you know, I could see a guy like Mookie getting moved, but Mookie is, like, that one guy just because he's so dynamic. You're talking a 10-win player with – elite offense and an elite glove and it's just sort of like okay like I could move in on that guy no doubt about it so that's what that is okay next thing speaking of Glaber Torres apparently this guy is projected to be an absolute complete monster okay so over what do we got here right now last season what he just did was a 128 OPS plus, 38 home runs. Oh my God, he had 38 home runs? Holy crap, he did. I had to go to Baseball Reference to double check that. He slugged 535 with an 871 OPS. His first two seasons earned a 122 and a 128 OPS plus. And MLB published an article just how good this guy is right now. And it has his projections for the next five years, hitting 41, 44, and 47 home runs, which is absolutely Bonkers. And one of the crazy things that this article says is that only one other middle infielder has combined at least 40 homers with an OPS plus of at least 135 at age 23 or younger. And that person is Alex Rodriguez, who Alex Rodriguez, before the steroids, like when his Seattle days, like absolutely Completely bonkers elite status right there. So, Alex Rodriguez' 1998 season, which this is wild, dude. He batted 310 with a 560 slugging and bop 42 home runs as a shortstop. Like, what world are we living in? And Glaber Torres is a second baseman and is projected next year to slug 557 with a 136 OPS plus and 40 home runs. Glaber Torres absolutely torched. The freaking Baltimore Orioles last year. And, I mean, he is just elite. And I love the guy's batting stance. Like, he... Like, dude, Like I remember growing up and watching, like, Ron Gant's batting stance and Dave Justice, Juan Gonzalez. And they've got, like, these power stances when they get up to the plate. And you're like, dude, this guy looks like he's about to rake. You know, it's a stance you definitely want to adopt in the backyard when you're playing wiffle ball and it's just like yo I'm about to dominate the house kids watch out and then you're just like beating the neighborhood kids and they got nothing on you (laughs) that's what Gleber Torres looks like when he's up and if you want to throw out the puke emoji anytime you think of the Yankees just do yourself the favor and watch Gleber Torres hit it is wild and unbelievable and really he's got a stellar glove too he it was like one play last year crap if I can remember it it was so he was playing second base. He had to like go to his right and dive to get the ball. And when he went to throw it, he like fell over completely on his side and then still threw the ball and got the guy out. I don't, it might have been a game against the Red Sox, honestly. I don't remember, but it was just like a stellar catch. And the guy's got a great arm, right? And I always look at like, You know how things go where it's easy to look at historic baseball like from the 90s and 80s and be like, dude, I loved watching that guy play like Jeff Bagwell, Um, like whoever, right? Like Ozzy Smith, Tony Gwynn, like you look at these historic guys and eat like Juan Gonzalez, like just like just think of baseball players you liked when you were a kid and you're just like, dude, they don't make them like that anymore. They're so they were so good. And now we just have a bunch of punk kids that won't run to first base. Glaber Torres is that guy to where twenty years from now you could look back and be like, "Dude, Glaber Torres was something special." How does a second baseman have a glove that good and hit so much, hit for so much power? And you might almost be looking at a guy here that could absolutely be an all time great. It, it it pains me to say that because I'm saying a New York Yankee will be an all time great, but it's the truth. All right, let's see what other stuff this article says about the great Glaber Torres. Okay, so. Glaber Torres is on pace to hit 285 home runs by the time he turns 27. That's tied with Mike Trout, and that's the fifth most of anybody at that age, which is interesting because if Trout never slows down, like I wonder at this point, if because the ball's different and stuff, if we'll look at guys that might challenge Barry Bonds' home run record all time. You know, get to the high six hundreds, low seven hundreds, maybe past Babe or Hank, and I think that would be huge for baseball. I would be so excited to see that because you know baseball; these it's so ingrained in numbers. And when we can get to a point where players can push those boundaries on those numbers, like remember what Tony Gwynn would do every single year, where you would wake up as a kid, turn on Sports Center, and figure out like what he's batting, how many hits he had last night, because we didn't have MLB Network when I was a kid. I'm thirty six. We had to rely on sports center highlights. We didn't know how many hits Tony Gwynn got, right? And if those and when those numbers like start to get pushed, like I love it. Especially with guys that you love. Like, I like Barry Bonds. Most people don't like Barry Bonds, right? Barry Bonds is like Brussels sprouts or asparagus, you know. It's sort of cool, but makes your piece smell funny. And like, I don't really like that guy, right? Uh other things about Glaber, dude, is like he when Ernie Banks was 27 he only had 183 home runs Ernie Banks is a 500 home run shortstop guy that's bonkers right now and that's a lot of folks are saying this and you know in an age of data it's like well don't tell me about data like give me the results but this is this is just something to excited to get excited about you know Glaber Torres could get hurt he could pull an Andrew Jones which I hope doesn't happen and things could go south. Maybe it's a guy you got to watch. But actually, well, we can go on to Andrew Jones now. So we're doing the Hall of Fame thing again, right? And an interesting thing about Andrew Jones getting elected to the Hall of Fame is last year, I think was his first year on the ballot. And he probably only, he got barely enough to stay on the ballot, right? I think Getting like five percent right keeps you on the ballot. Well, Andrew Jones, if you go to his baseball reference page, you're like, okay, sixty two point eight WAR, four hundred thirty four home runs. Like, okay, so sixty two point eight WARs, like it's good. It's not like elite, like, but sixty two point eight is a high WAR, a really high WAR for Major League Baseball player. But when you're talking about Hall of Famers, it's like, okay, is OPS plus one eleven? 823 OPS, like those are little sketchy numbers, right? But the thing about Andrew Jones is in his prime, okay, so Andrew Jones started to dip off on his age 30 season. So Andrew Jones from 19 to 29, that was from 96 to 06, okay, Andrew Jones had a 10-year stretch where he was arguably the best defensive center fielder that ever lived, and I I mean, I saw him play. Like, obviously, that was in the TBS days, so I had it. But, like, bro, in 1996, I was, like, 13 years old, right? I could never judge someone being the best center fielder, right? I never saw Willie Mays play or any of that sort of thing, right? But, like, baseball folks, like, smart old people are like Andrew Jones was arguably the best. He was at least very, very, very elite, top tier, .00001 great center fielders right but the weird thing you get with Andrew Jones is by the time age 30 hit injuries he must have discovered pop tarts like myself because he got a little husky and his game suffered right and then the numbers dropped down right so his age 30 season. He had an 87 OPS plus, so by the time, here, check this out, in 2005, he had a 136 OPS plus, which means he was 36% better than the average hitter. He was second in MVP voting with 51 home runs and 128 RBIs, and in 2005, he was an elite center fielder, gold gloves, silver slugger, crazy. An elite center fielder. In 2005, Andrew Jones could have been the absolute best player in all of baseball. The person that beat him in MVP voting was Albert Pujols. Albert Pujols had an 8.4 war that year. Andrew Jones was a 6'7". Now, Albert Pujols was a first baseman, Andrew Jones being a shortstop. So I see the war and all that sort of stuff. But just because like Albert Pujols had, I guess, those better offensive numbers, and had a higher war. The case could be made to be like, give me the center fielder because I like that impact on every game, right? But Albert Pujols had 41 homers and Andrew Jones had 51 homers. Homers aren't everything. But we all know how elite of an offensive player Albert Pujols was. And Andrew Jones was in that mix. Being an elite center fielder, it's just completely crazy, dude. Andrew Jones had seasons of war that were like, wait, why can't I read? Like, 6'7", 6'6", 8.2, huge, huge numbers right here, but his Hall of Fame is sort of ruined right now because of the drop-off. I mean, heck, Terry Pendleton told a story one time that him, Andrew Jones, and Willie Mace were all on the same ball field, probably like some all-star game or something, and Terry Pendleton said that Willie Mays looked at Andrew Jones and said, you know, you're the best center fielder I've ever seen play the game. Like, that's coming from Willie Mays, which is wild, right? Like, even based on advanced metrics on baseball reference and fan graph, Andrew Jones is the best defensive center fielder in the history of baseball. Even with the decline, if you look at the baseball reference numbers, he saved 234.7 runs defensively over his career. That's 50.2 runs better than Willie Mays and 29.9 better than Roberto Clemente. Like that's that's elite status. Like those guys are like up on a Mount Rushmore of something in baseball, dude. It's wild. Andrew Jones was even one of only is currently, he's still alive. <laughs> Andrew Jones is one of six outfielders in baseball history to be worth more than a hundred runs with both their bats and their gloves. Six players in a category. Those six dudes: Barry Bonds, Al Kaline, Willie Mays, Roberto Clemente, Kenny Lofton, and Andrew Jones. All Hall of Famers, with the exception of Kenny Lofton, who should have been a Hall of Famer and probably will be on some sort of like ballot down the road or whatever. But it's a shame. Like even guys like Kenny. And Andrew Jones is projected to fall off the ballot this year because it looks like he's going to have less than 5% of the vote, you know? And, yeah, I would say Kenny, Andrew Jones, and, like, Fred McGriff are, like, three guys that I'm just super bummed about that never got into the Hall of Fame. And you just want to see that because, you know, those are some— when you see some of your favorite players growing up who don't get that satisfaction. It's just like, man, that sort of sucks, you know? I didn't grow up watching Ted Williams, but I'm glad he just got him because he was very well deserving. But sort of a bummer on Andrew Jones, you know, and it's I guess there are a lot of riders who do the voting that maybe are old school that that maybe look at maybe harp on like the offensive numbers too much like it's weird for like a heavy defensive guy, even in today's days when we have the data, it's not easy. To judge a guy's defensive value, even when you look at a lot of defensive numbers on fan graphs, they don't really become accurate till multiple years, which sort of further speaks to Andrew Jones, right? Where it's like, okay, we've got his data for numerous years, and he was great, you know? And the reason why I say that is because like, if you were to look at like, Kyle Schwarber's defensive stats for 2018 and just look at his stats, like they would look really high, but those defensive metrics don't really start to become accurate to, like, a few seasons, like four or five seasons or whatever. And we've got ten good ones on Andrew Jones, and this is a guy, no doubt, that should be in the Hall of Fame. All right, all right. Next on the list, Cuban Otani pursuing path to MLB. There's a Cuban dude by the name of Oscar Luis Colas, who is a two-way player who has been given the name the Cuban Otani because he is a left-handed guy that so he's a lefty that can throw 95 miles an hour but on top of that he's got some muscle to him 6'1 190 man the guy hit um he slugs 515 dude you got a lefty that can throw 95 i'll take that alone man but a guy that can slug dude that's awesome man and he he's um officially defected from Cuba and he's ready to go man listen major league baseball teams these days boy they love a two way player, man. They're trying to be, you know, genius with these things to get more bang for their buck, you know. Like a two way player in Major League Baseball, it's like that chicken sandwich from KFC that was like chicken, but then the buns were also like big pieces of chicken too. And it's just like, dude, there's so much here. This is great. Like that's what I Im- That's what the two way stars are, man. These are stellar dudes, super efficient, man. Get stuff done. One roster spot, two positions. Let's do this thing, dude. So he's defected, man, and that's cool. But the thing about it is, is he sort of defected at a weird time because these Major League Baseball teams, they get a set amount of international signing pool money, right, for the whole year. And it looks like most teams have, like, sort of spent that money. But not all teams have spent that money. This seems like a guy you got to shell out cash to. No matter what, you know what I mean? It doesn't look like he's gonna be as good as like Yohan Makata. He's not gonna be as good as Otani or Luis Robert. But who knows with baseball, man? You know, there were a couple years ago, Eric Thames came out of the gate and hit a ton of home runs, and you're like, Whoa, that's weird. So and I mean Eric Thames is a serviceable guy, but he sort of sucks. So bad analogy. Back to this guy though, he's twenty one, dude. He's a youngster. He defected early, man. That's a pretty cool deal. Defecting from Cuba, man, that's that's a hard that's a hard thing to do. You ever look into stories of defection and about how guys do this? Like, defecting is basically they're having to, like, run away from their country. It's like the Hunger Games for baseball players, man. Yasiel Puig got busted multiple times before he actually, before he actually defected successfully. He had to get on a boat. Like, a, they call him, like, a cigarette boat. I think that's just sort of like a... Some Naked and Afraid stuff, man, and go from Cuba to Cancun. And Yasiel Puig's whole journey was basically like Naked and Afraid. You're talking a 30-mile hike covered in mosquitoes. Yasiel Puig was going through crocodile-infested swamps to try to get to America to play baseball. These defection stories are crazy. Like, could you imagine that, dude? Like, me personally, like, when I get in my hot car in the summertime in my my stuff sticks together like I have a really hard time but it's just in all seriousness it's amazing Yasiel Puig's alive dude he was actually during his defection when he was in Cuba he got stolen by another rival smuggling ring Yasiel Puig got stolen while being smuggled from other smugglers like a bicycle you leave unlocked on your back porch he got stolen like a GT performer this is crazy Yasiel Puig was working with some guy named El Commando, and this guy named El Commando bribed the airport to, like, get all this paperwork done so he could get on the plane and then become a Mexican citizen. They say it takes, like, four to six months to become a Mexican citizen. Yasiel Puig was a Mexican citizen in 15 days because the guy named El Comando got it done. Uh, you think El Commando, that's a guy you don't mess with, man. That's a guy who's probably going to rip out your organs, sell them on the black market for a ton of money, and then just leave you there to suffer, dude. This is completely crazy. Crocodile swamps, that's how it was, man. These guys would like meet, these defectors like will meet their little boats in the middle of the night, get on these tiny cigarette boats in rough terrains, and they're literally in the ocean just floating. Like, this isn't a motorboat. There's, like, no deck below where you can relax and put your feet up. It is some straight up naked and afraid and stuff. But there are no producers there when you get bit up by a shark. Jose Fernandez had to save his mom from a shark. Jose Fernandez, he came over at 20. Well, he tried to come over once at 14. Dude, this is heartbreaking, dude. So Jose Fernandez is, like, 10 miles from Miami. He can see the lights in Miami. He's, like, almost there. And then the Coast Guard finds him and sends him back. If you're trying to defect from Cuba, if they catch you in the water, they're going to send you back. But if you make it to land, you're good. Like, literally, if the Coast Guard saw you and you were, like, right there pulling up on shore and getting on land, you're good. Because they because by the time they catch you, you're already on the land. And because of, like, the international laws... Because like you're seeking asylum, if you make it, you're good, right? So there's a law that's basically like if you're from Cuba, and you can prove you're Cuban with your Cuban ID, and you're in America, you don't have to have a passport, you don't have to have done anything legal, but per like the asylum rules, like we're going to take care of you because you're here. But Jose Fernandez was too far away, and they made him pull back, dude. And at 14, they threw him up in a jail, man. And then he tried again when he was 20, because I think, like, his uncle had already came over. So, sort of helped it and set it up. He had to spend, like, I think $1,000 to get here. And he saved his mom from a shark attack in the middle of the water. What world is this? This sounds like a Jaws movie. Like, this sort of stuff can't be real, but it is, man. And... The gangsters that Puig was working with, I mean, who knows how many hundreds of thousand dollars he paid, but I mean, guys were looking to smuggle him. He was, Yasiel Puig was a hot commodity to get smuggled in because those, like the smugglers were going to get, you know, a percentage of his pay no matter what, Uh, but crazy, crazy smuggling stories, like just brave, man. These guys could literally just die, dude, like shark infested waters, swarms of mosquitoes, like, this is nuts, man. It's like Tom Hanks when he's got the, the little um the volleyball named Wilson or whatever, dude. It's unbelievable. I mean these rival smuggling rings, El Commando. I'm not messing with that guy, man, no matter what. But he's here, man. It's crazy stuff, dude. It's really crazy to realize what these guys go through to get over here, like how important baseball is to him, man. And I think uh, maybe last year. MLB tried to set something up with Cuba to make it easier, and Cuba sort of busted it, man. Cuba does not want folks to leave at all. There, I think it was one of um, Jose Fernandez's, like, cousins was, like, a medical doctor or something like that and wanted to go to, like, Venezuela to, like, help out with something, like, on a medical mission— and they wouldn't let him leave because he was like a defect risk, and they're like, we don't want anyone defecting from this island. Cuba does not want you to leave no matter what, and that's what happens. Like, anytime guys get the chance, like, Puig and Jose Fernandez literally risk their lives to get chopped up by a shark and a crocodile to come to America, man. That's how bad they don't wait to get out. They do this stuff so secretive, man, and it's just, it, it's easy to get busted, dude. Super dangerous. I mean, I know guys like Roldis Chapman just, like, went to the Netherlands for a traveling game of baseball and just, like, straight up escaped, dude. Like, this is just wild, dude. I don't, they don't want you to leave, man. Apparently, Cuba's, like, stuck in the 80s still. Like, nothing's modern over there, man. It's awful, dude. But th- that's sort of what it is with the defection, dude. Just crazy stories. There's a article, if you, you could just Google it, man, it goes all into Yassiel Puig's defection and it is a super long story man and it's uh it's a powerful story man it's a good story it'd be a great novel someone should make a movie about Yasiel Puig's defection he should definitely play himself. Uh, okay man I might what 36 minutes on this podcast? I if there's anything else I want to talk about. Oh dude okay we'll get into this man. If you guys don't know much about Mark Fidrich so Mark Fidrich had a season in I think nineteen seventy six That was one of the best pitching seasons ever in the history of the game. And I wasn't born then, right? So it's sort of, I've always heard the name, the bird, you know, didn't really know much about the guy or whatever. I think from a war perspective, Mark Fidrich's 1976 season from a pitching war perspective was like the 35th best season of all time. This guy, listen, did you watch, did you guys watch wrestling when Stone Cold Steve Austin got big and was like the biggest thing since Slice Spread? He was so popular. That's what Mark Fidrich was in 1976. He had, and you can watch this game on YouTube, but he had a game on Monday Night Baseball. Dude, ABC used to have Monday Night Baseball. Which is wild. I had no idea. And he pitched his complete game, one earned run, seven hits against the New York Yankees on prime time. There were 48,000 people at Tiger Stadium. And when he finished the game... Nobody in the crowd left. They cheered and wanted an encore. They wanted him to come back on the field after he went to the dugout so they could cheer him on. This guy was huge. And he had all these, like, wild quirks, dude, which were so fun to watch because you can see him during the game to where, like, he would go out—every time he'd go out to the man, he would get down. He would hunker down and manicure the mound and, like, fill in the hole with his hands. And one time, a groundskeeper offered to do it for him, and he was like, no, don't touch it. Don't touch it. When he would finish an inning, he would sprint to the dugout. He looked like Ultimate Warrior just sprinting to the ring, man. He would just get after it. He would congratulate—he would— he would thank his players after they made an out. Like, if his shortstop fielded a ground ball, he would personally thank that player. He would personally thank his defense and his offense, like, when they would come back to hit. He personally thanked them all for helping him do it. He had, like, such gratitude because he recognized, like, I guess, how lucky he was to be in this position. And he was so full of energy. Watch the YouTube game, man. Read up on this guy. His age 21 season, he threw. He started 29 games, 24 of them were complete games, and out of those 24 complete games, I think three or four of them were 11 inning complete games. One was 11 and a third that he lost 2-1, to which is completely wild. The guy had a 159 ERA+. You know, actually... I think when you look at his ERA plus, that might be the 35th best season ever. I don't recall. It's that or his overall war, dude. This guy was a stud. Didn't walk a lot of guys. Great control. They. This is funny because when you watch the Monday night baseball game, the announcers are Bob Euchre and a couple other guys. So it's a great called game if you watch it. And they keep referring to the Jugs pitch tracker, right? I guess someone's in the stands with just like some gun they got from the racetrack. And it said that Vinders was throwing 93 or 94, which with accurate tech. Technology today, that was definitely much higher 90s than 93 or 94. He had a good fastball, great pitches, great control. Dude, the guy was so fun to watch. He threw 250 innings. And then in 77 and 78, he had good seasons, but was hurt most of the season, right? So his shoulder basically went out on him. And at that time, the technology wasn't there. The technology didn't come till about the early 80s. And by the time 1980 came, he was guy was completely out of baseball, right? And this is true. This is a really good what-if story, you know? Like you always attracted to like Bo Jackson and Eric Davis, but Fidrich was a stud, dude. How popular he was was completely crazy dude his team loved him man and the nickname the bird dude is so fun but yeah he didn't mess around he would like you ever see Max Scherzer in a game where he's talking to the baseball dude during this game he I'll have to share the link on social media or something if you go to YouTube and just type in Mark Fidrich Monday Night Baseball you'll get this game dude he talks to the baseball so energetically like He'll get the the catcher will throw the ball back to him and he's like when he would start his windup like from like his windup not his stretch but his windup he would be like hunkered down a little bit right and he would be hunkered down and just visibly having a full conversation with the ball like telling it where to go and all these sorts of things and then. If he would get like a little, a little overhyped up, he would be on the mound like physically like moving his body to calm himself down. And I love that, man. I feel like with Major League Baseballs now, Baseball players, they have to feel like they're so quiet. But the, And then, of course, you get a guy like Yasiel Puig who's a little cocky or whatever, and then folks don't take to that. So a lot of Major League Baseball players are afraid to be themselves because of what folks will think of them. But people loved Mark Fidrich because you could just see the love and joy in his eyes and how he played baseball, and he was just so fun to watch. And he was just this huge phenomenon in 1976. I had no idea just the scale of popularity that this guy was, but him talking to the ball, And then sometimes after he'd throw a ball, he would wave his arm to, like, tell himself, no, the ball needs to be over there. It was, dude, so good. Watch the game, man. Or at least you can just watch some of his highlights on YouTube. Super rad, man. He passed away when he was 54, man. When he finished with baseball, he was was a farmer, dude. He was from Massachusetts, which is awesome. So when you listen to his post-game interview at... Um, after the Yankees game, dude, you can hear his thick accent, but it's fun because he's just so happy. He even cusses a few times, and he's like, damn, hell, you know what I mean? It's so good, dude, on national TV, man. Happy, he's just happy, dude. He smiled so hard. But he passed away when he was 54 on his farm, man. He was working on a dump truck. And his his shirt got caught up like in the drivetrain and it choked him out, man. So that's unfortunate for him for sure, man. But this is a great dude. And if you're looking at something to get into in the offseason, get into some Mark Fidrich, man. Watch this game. And he—oh, dude, one other thing, and then I'll let you go. He was a fast pitcher. He pitched this complete game in an hour and 51 minutes, and his team scored like five or seven runs or something. This guy would literally get the ball back and get right back on the mound ready to throw, and he was having to wait on the batter to come in. And in 1976, the batters were moving pretty stinking fast, right? And I've always liked the idea of even pitchers today working quicker. And if they have to slow down their velocity some, I guess that's fine. Because a lot of people will say, I've heard it said, that a pitcher's pace has slowed down because they throw so hard they need that extra time between pitches it's like taking a break between sets at the gym right you need to take a couple minutes break or whatever and i think that's what pitchers are sort of using the delay now because they're like man i gotta really slow down but i think Like, let's say if there's a pitcher that gets in a slump and all of a sudden isn't pitching good. Batters are seeing his pitches more. His stuff is sort of off or whatever. I feel like pitchers, more than ever, should use the speed of the game to their advantage and work quicker. Like a guy like Mark Burley did when he pitched his complete game. He worked so fast the whole entire game and didn't shake his catcher off once. And I love the idea of a pitcher working quicker. I do... Love how I do love the gameplay better when it goes quicker. So when you watch the Fidrich game, or like any older baseball game from the '80s, they go so faster and they are for sure more entertaining to watch. And it's not because the length of the game is shorter. I think if the length of the game was three hours, it would be fine. If the pace was quicker because the action's always there, like a football game, the possibility of anything could happen. But I like the idea of a pitcher moving faster, not because I like it better, because I feel like there's a competitive advantage to that. And I don't know why some pitchers who are maybe looking for something new, looking to try to reinvent themselves, like Jarrell Cotton coming off Tommy John, or Matt Harvey, who's just out there being Matt Harvey at these points with a touchdown ERA, yo, speed your process up a little bit. Don't just like change your pitches or your delivery, but change how you do things on the mound. Work quick, dude, because it's that sort of confidence. Like, if you could do anything to throw something at a batter that's unexpected. You're good, man. I think that's great, dude. Um, I'm going to stop, man. We're 44 minutes. Thank you for listening to this whole entire stinking episode. Uh, Find me on social media at Facebook, Greatest on Dirt. Twitter, Greatest on Dirt. And Instagram, Greatest Show on Dirt. Find us, like our stuff. I post funny stuff sometimes believe it or not I'll post some pretty good stuff I the other day I found a picture this is crazy dude now I posted like a couple days ago it's it's like a split it's like bathroom stalls but the doors aren't on them and Tony Perez and Pete Rose are on adjacent toilets pooping (laughs) <laughs> it's the wildest picture. And they've got the biggest smiles on the like They're so happy, dude. And they were just like happy to get their picture taken. Like, I, I I, mean, I'd love to see that. Honestly, I'd love to see CeCe Sabathia sitting next to Aaron Judge taking a dump. <laughs> That's wild, dude. All right. I'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening. And until I get back to you, have a great off season. Spring training is like 30 something days away. So we're almost there, kids. All right. Talk to you later. Bye.